Hello, welcome to the Doing CX Right podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Sherman, devoted to helping leaders like you intentionally increase brand loyalty and cultivate better relationships by doing customer experience right. Not talking or thinking about it, but really taking action and doing experience management the right way. This show is about guided steps to achieve better human and business outcomes, which has nothing to do with competing on price. This season of shows digs deep into new research and case studies reviewed with highly acclaimed authors and experts. Plus, you'll hear my insights as a practitioner working with various sectors and organizations. Besides business, you'll also hear personal stories and invaluable lessons to fuel your personal growth as we bring our whole self to work. Please share this podcast with others who can benefit and subscribe to my newsletter at doingcxright.com for updates and helpful resources to advance your business and career. Today, I'm focusing on the topic of making your business ridiculously easy for customers to interact with. Question is, what are the essential steps to reach this pinnacle of customer-centric success? In this episode of Doing CX Right, I join forces with David Arvin, a renowned expert in customer experience, as we dive into these pivotal questions and explore the nuances of simplifying your business processes and designing a customer journey that is intuitive and seamless. You'll hear key strategies and the necessary mindset shifts to elevate your brand, making it not just an option, but the preferred choice for your customers, a brand that customers love and keep coming back to time and time again. Now, let's get started. Hello, David Afrin. Welcome to the Doing CX Right Show. Thank you so much. No, let's let's correct that. The award-winning Doing uh. CX Right. Congratulations <laughs> on that. The big accolades. We knew this in the CX community. The superstar that you are, and the great content that is delivered through this podcast. So I'm thrilled to be a part of it today. Oh, thank you so much. It means a lot, especially coming from you. Now, I know how awesome you are, but tell my audience, in case there's this rare chance they don't know who you are, what, are the what do you do for a living? <laughs> what do you do for a living? Who are you? I, I, I speak on, on CX, on customer experience. I speak, I consult. I've written a series of books for those watching the video version that are strategically located next to my head behind there. But... um. I I work with organizations. I'm fortunate to do a lot of work internationally in 26 countries. And I help organizations, teams, eliminate friction in their process and future-proof their their engagement by becoming ridiculously easy to do business with. There's my little elevator speech there for you. It's perfect. Before we dig deep, why are you so passionate about these topics? You know, it, it's actually a, a couple of different reasons. I spend most of my time, my, my formative years after college, I actually went to college on a full ride theater scholarship. I did theater and music. Uh, and, and I realized a couple of years in that I don't want to be doing community theater in God's wrath, Iowa, when I'm 50 years old and actually have to support a family. So because I have this, this, this radio voice, not quite Scott McCain, but, but just <laughs> below Scott McCain level. Uh, I did radio. I did journalism. So my, I studied broadcast journalism in school and then went, as many of my friends say, I went to the dark side 
and I went into public relations. So I was a PR flag for a lot of years. I helped clients um, get exposure on some of the major networks and Mm -hmm. uh, did it on the healthcare side and then went and worked for a lot of different clients. But I sort of made the shift into speaking shortly after 9-11 when the world was upside down and I had six clients go bankrupt uh, and nobody was traveling. And I just thought, how do we... How do we better monetize the the wisdom that we have gained? And I found out through a, a mm. great colleague in the speaking world that you can actually get paid to to uh, speak and teach all of this. But but the CX shift was kind of different, which was I spent a lot of years in marketing and branding, helping organizations better describe the uh, and differentiate themselves from their competitors. But as we all know in the CX community, the, the world has shifted pretty significantly over the last seven to 10 years. And what we say about ourselves, while certainly not unimportant, has become far less impactful than what other people say about us. And so I saw my clients struggling. I saw the, the work that we did that, would, that historically worked very, very well in terms of being very persuasive in our language, take a back seat to the rise of social media, social proof, that kind of influence. And it was no longer just Siskel and Ebert. I know I'm showing my age a little bit, you know, doing movie reviews. Now everybody's doing reviews on everything. And so that's what led to my research, which led to my book, Why Customers Leave and How to Win Them Back. And apparently it struck a nerve because we're in, you know, five languages around the world. But, um, for for me, it was a, it was a, a resurgence, a rebirth in my career, and a, a renewal in my energy as I started really digging deeper into what is driving our purchasing and relationship decisions. And it's different, and it and it and it has become clearer and changing. and And that's the exciting part of this business is it's always changing, and it's our job to help bring clarity to our clients of what these changes mean. Yeah, and there's a lot of psychology to this, but we don't have enough time to go into that direction right Right. now. (laughs) What does doing CX right mean to you? Well, here's that's a great question. I think what's important is what it means to your customers, what it means to your clients, because we don't judge. I mean, we have to make decisions as business owners, as business leaders to try and align how we do business with the way our customers want to. But they're the ones who decide what right is. And they vote. And they vote with their feet. And they vote with their dollars. And so we can certainly see the trends. And it's different with different business sectors. But doing CX right means doing business to the extent that we can and the extent that's profitable in a way that our customers prefer. And that's the challenge, is that balance today. And I think some of that is still playing out in terms of us recognizing as or, or business owners and leaders and the people that you and I work with is really determining what's the tolerance of our customers and clients. How much reduction in individual access to people are they willing to put up with? Well, we can still be profitable, right? If we, if we left after our, up to our customers, we would give them anything, anytime, what they wanted, the way they wanted it, and have unlimited staff. Of course, that's not profitable, uh, and that doesn't work from our perspective. The challenge, and it's an ongoing challenge, is striking that balance. And I think we're still learning, different market segments. Um, what is it that customers are willing to tolerate? What do they prefer uh, organizations are going to say we're moving to digital options, which are great for those under 30, less great for those of us who are 60 and older. And so we're serving multiple categories at the same time. So the short answer I know is too late to your question. Doing CX right is 
is judged by our customers. Is it something that they prefer? So if it's so obvious that it's sort of a rhetorical question here, but if it's so obvious that making it ridiculously easy to buy, to learn, to pay your bill, to use the product, to get help and customer service, then why is there so much struggle in companies? And this is so intuitive. Why are many not doing it right? And you know, and that's what (laughs) customers say in their brain. Like this is so, when you see them in line and they're like looking around going, unbelievable. In their mind, they're saying, this doesn't make sense. And if it's so obvious to us, why? Because there's competing forces and we know that. And that's the clients and the the organizations and the brands that we work with. Um, A, there's history. Here's how we've historically done it. And it worked and it was successful and it's scary to make a shift. Um, it can be expensive to, yeah. to alter how we do it. And so it's, it's a process of moving there. Um, I'm not so arrogant as to think that companies just don't get it. I think they do get it. I think they've made a calculation, a, a decision that we're going we're gonna to be comfortable with the fact that we're going to have some level of attrition that will offset the cost savings. And the perfect example is something like when you go to a Walmart and it's very difficult to find a staffed checkout lane. I, I was there shopping. We got, we're new empty nesters. I know you are as well, but we've got five kids yeah. grown and gone. And when they come to visit, shopping cart overflowed. We, we, we walk up to checkout and they direct you to self-checkout. And I'm like, I have two hours worth of scanning that somebody who is qualified could do in two minutes. And what they'll say, of course, is, no, we give you a choice, but it's not a choice. You have 28 self-checkout lanes and one or two that are staffed, right? I don't for one minute believe that they're naive. They have made the calculus that we know a certain percentage of people will be frustrated and may to the, may, maybe to the point of leaving, but our cost savings will offset that. And so it's voices like ours, like our great colleagues and those who the first hundred people that you have interviewed on your podcast, who are the emissaries and the ambassadors who are hammering the message home that don't forget about X and recognize the cost of Y. Because oftentimes the people who are in the room making these decisions, the bean counters, we affectionately call them, um, aren't necessarily balanced by, I mean, marketing should be in the room when these decisions are made. Um, CX should be in the room when these decisions are made. And so it, it's a constant battle. Um, ultimately, the numbers will bear out what works and what doesn't. The exciting time for us, I think, is that there are so many new innovations, so many new conveniences that companies are trying different things. Back to your question of, of why don't they get it? I think they do. I think they're just trying to do as much as they can for as little cost as possible. And the people who do it very, very well will survive and the other ones will struggle. So let's dig into who's doing it well. What can people listening learn? What can they actually go do to be able to know, are they ridiculously easy? Where can they go fix the pain points? What's your view? Because all of it brings the customer back. Sure. Well, here's the thing is the whole idea of a customer journey is fairly new, but it's fairly common today, right? Uh, We create this customer journey that our customers will go through, right? Here's how they learn about us. Here's how they can discover, reach out, connect, uh, uh, select, discuss, buy, deliver, install, whatever that might be. We create that journey. 
and it works. And where it doesn't work, we tweak it because it's got to work for us. And at the end, it's got to be something that's ultimately profitable. And because if we can have a greater level of predictability of the customer's journey, their path, then we can have a greater level of predictability of our revenue and profits and cash flow. And we can budget for that and we can hire for that. Here's the problem. The problem is your customers have never read your employee manual. Hmm. They don't know how they're supposed to do it. They just know how they want to do it. And so I was on another podcast and somebody was talking about customer service, and I think sort of conflating it with CX. And they were like, how could this be getting worse? If we've been talking about this for 40 years, which we have, how could it be getting worse? And I said, well, it is getting worse, but here's why. It's because organizations are getting, are very cognizant of what they cannot control. They can't control competitors. They can't control pandemics. They can't control new technologies, right? So they try to control what they can to have some measure of predictability in our process. And with that comes being a little overly rigid. And so what we're seeing, and I think this is a mistake, is that companies are at, at the risk of somebody saying something they shouldn't, they don't let them say anything, right? They, then we have the scripted empathy. We have all of these, yes, I understand, uh, Mrs. Mrs. Sherman, how, how frustrating that must be. It's like, don't, don't read the script. Okay, I, sorry, Mrs. Sherman. I mean, I, no, no, don't read the script, right? Because we're trying to control everything. And instead we come across as rigid, as inflexible, mm. and as creating a heightened level of, of frustration. So the challenge is, is to empower your people, which is scary. It's scary to let your people make decisions. But when, you pre when you're so worried that they're going to make a bad decision or an unprofitable one, you preclude them from making extraordinary decisions. And so we end up yeah. flattening out the whole thing. So, so two comments. Sure. One, you hit such a pet peeve of mine when you said that people use customer experience and customer service interchangeably. Yeah. A huge pet peeve, which I know you're not, but many people do. Sure. And so, oh, we could spend the whole time on just that topic. But listeners, listen, do not use those terms interchangeably. They are not the same. Customer service is just a component, an important one, a part of the whole customer journey. With that said... You talk about being ridiculously easy. How does somebody listening right now know, are they ridiculously easy or are they ridiculously hard? How, they're thinking, I don't know. How can I know? Right. Or, or they think we are, right? They generally are. Yeah. I mean, it's where right, they say the first step is to recognize that you have a problem. Um, if your process and your journey and your payment systems were created more than 10 years ago, you are outdated. Right. We look at all the other things. I mean, because the reality is we're all consumers. Everybody. We're consumers. We're clients. We're customers. We're patients. We are the consumer of, of whatever product or service. What are the things that frustrate you? There's your first clue, right? When you go to the yes. doctor's office, they hand you some technology that you weren't trained on so that the receptionist doesn't have to enter the information. Let's give it to the guy who's bleeding from his head. Let's make him fill out the information, right? <laughs> reality is, <laughs> is, how, and, and this isn't new. Take a step back. Walk your own journey, but walk it with fresh eyes. 20 years ago, we did it with secret shoppers. Right now, everybody's yes. a secret shopper because they're all putting reviews on Yelp. Call your own 800 number. Um, yeah. When, you know, I do bits on my, on my stuff on stage. It, I, I use a lot of humor, but I use it strategically to temper a tough message about what it takes to compete and win. When we talk about when you're on the phone going, real person, real person, Asian, real person. I think you said no. No, right? You know, why is that, <laughs> why, why is that funny? 
it's funny because this crap happens to us all the time. And these are smart, big companies. And so if you create processes that add friction, that add extra steps, you're going in the wrong direction. A couple of months ago, I was in London and speaking at a variety of events, but I was at this football, English football stadium um, inside up in the luxury box. But on the way there, I'm at the train station and there was a vending machine. It was really interesting. I took a picture of it and it was all the, the sodas and all the chips or crisps as they would call them over there. What was interesting about it was there was nowhere to put in the money. There was nowhere to put in a credit card. It was just a QR code. And so the idea was that you scan the QR code, you download their app, you take out your wallet, you put in your credit card information. So now they like that because now they have your information, they can market to you. And then once you have all of that done, you can select the number and do it all from your phone, which somebody thought was a really great idea. What was interesting was both machines were completely full. Why? Because it's a train station and people are in a hurry. They, they created this, uh, uh, it's a solution looking for a problem. You know what was really easy? Mm -hmm. Tapping our credit card, clicking our phone for our Apple Pay. They actually made it more challenging. And so there's a whole generation of entrepreneurs and technology people who have look, look at this cool new process. And what it does is it makes it more difficult for us. So if a, if a, if a company's looking like, how do we become ridiculously easy? How many things are we asking them to do for themselves? How many things do we give them the option if they want, right? How are, yeah. is it more difficult than it should be? And yeah. that oftentimes takes an expert to walk through the process with you. So are you talking about measurements of level of effort? Are you talking about other KPIs? I'm, I'm talking about all of the above, all of the above. And some of it is it's most obvious about just the time it takes to to complete a transaction to go through an interaction, um, repeat business. I mean, there's so many specific metrics, and then there's there's plenty of observational and uh, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to think the, the best way to put it. Um, some of them that just are, are fairly intuitive. Uh, I'm all for the data, but some of it's fairly um, anecdotal and observational mm -hmm. as well. As you walk, you can watch people go through the process. But then there's also the, the surveys. There's also the conversations. I'm working with a company out of the UK. I have this really phenomenal new relationship. I'm actually serving as an advisor for an organization called Anthrolytics. And if you look them up at anthrolytics.io, and it's a new platform, an analytics platform that helps organizations understand how their customers and clients feel about them real time, every day. So when, when a, a customer leaves, for example, um, they have churn or somebody complains about something. Well, why? Well, they tend to ascribe it to the most recent interaction. That was the cause of it. And the reality is it's far more complex than that. It's a series of moments that matter. And so this new analytics platform says, you know, if we do this, if we raise our rates, who's going to leave, right? And, they, and their answer is, well, that depends. It depends on how they feel about you. And so what yeah. they're able to do, and, and it's really phenomenal, is go through this, take their existing data, run it through their, their algorithm, the text of, of recent ch um, chats, the conversations of recent calls, recent purchases, how long, abandoned shopping carts, all of the above. And they're basically being able to tell real time how their customers feel about them. And, and by the same token, their employees as well. Who's likely to leave? So somebody in a call center they can look and say, this person has had very difficult cases over the last week. We've had a couple of cases of, of absenteeism. They're at risk. 
So they're able to be alerted to intervene early. Maybe that person needs to rotate to a less difficult thing. Uh, maybe there needs to be an intervention for somebody who might be really on the edge and they do it for customers as well. But on the positive side, who are the people that love us? Who are the people who are most uh, receptive to a potential marketing campaign? And so the work that we're doing, and, and I'm an advisor for them, and it's just the smartest people on the planet. But I think that's the future, is the more data we have, the more predictive analytics, doesn't mean it's necessarily indicative, but it's certainly predictive that we're able to intervene for the right people, to, to market to the right people as well. But it's a series of moments that matter. And I think that's the next iteration of CX. It's not just ascribing it to the last uh, interaction, but what are all the things that matter to them? So it's, it's really exciting new research that's being done. Yes, absolutely. And it also requires, and I've said this on many shows, but I'm going to say it again because I really mean it. And I want people to hear this. You got to break the data silos. Yeah. You got to break the human silos, the data silos in companies. And what you mentioned is actually doing that, breaking the silos. And you also used a very important F word, feelings. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and well, you have to marry both. Absolutely. Well, that's what big data is, isn't it? It's the more data points we can connect and intersect, the better our predictive analysis is going to be. There will come a time... And it's probably in the near future where you're going to see Ancestry.com and 23andMe will merge. They're going to have to. At some point, the critical mass of people who are going to do it have done it and just to survive. And what we're going to get is a combining of data sets that is going to be unbelievable. I mean, they're going to be able to tell you, Stacy, you're likely to, you know, have your, your second to the back molar um, start to disintegrate at age 55. I mean, I already did mine. I found out, they, they told me in my analyst, you don't like cilantro. I don't. I have the gene that I hate cilantro. And my <laughs> wife found out that she's 4% Neanderthal. It's just, it's great. it explains, yeah. I clubbed her over the head and I dragged her by her hair. She felt at home. <laughs> but, the, the, but you're right. It's breaking the data yeah. silos allows us to, to coalesce more information. And it's not about yeah. being scary and being able to say we're going to make everybody a number. It's we want to do better work. We want to identify who are those, those customers, who are those clients that are at risk because they've had a series of negative interactions that score that might re, um, benefit from some, a personal touch. Otherwise, you know when we find out that somebody doesn't like us by and large is when they leave. Wouldn't it be great to move upstream? And that's the exciting part of the, uh, of the, the new science and the new analytics. Yes. Give me two or three points in your book. I don't care. Any of your sure, books around sure. this about the data says X. And so what can someone do with it? In other words... Yeah. No, I got it. Yeah. I mean, okay. there was a great study came out from um, Harvard Business Review. It said there's a hundred times better chance of winning the client with a response within five minutes. Not 100%, 100 times better if you respond within wow. five minutes. It doesn't mean it's necessarily uh, realistic for most organizations to be able to have that level of staffing. But what it says is something very clear is once people find a resource, they stop looking. It goes back to the whole thing. Oh, I found it. It's the last place I looked. Well, of course, you're not going to keep looking. Yeah. But that works the same way. Organizations who are trying to balance staffing, which is the biggest challenge right now. It's sometimes, oftentimes, their biggest cost. And it's also 
a huge challenge right now. Recruitment, retention, everybody's experiencing it. But when you balance that against the cost of attrition, the benefits of retention for your customers and clients, it requires a different level of thinking. I mean, we can say the numbers bear out specifically here. It's that difference if if everybody took those economics classes between um, a a static economic model and a a dynamic. Static one is a a penny saved is a penny earned. You cut a dollar, you're up a dollar. But a dynamic model says something very clearly, which is you cut a dollar, there is a behavior that's connected to that. Somebody gets reduced service as a result of that. Somebody lost their job because of that. Somebody has to wait an extra 30 seconds because of that. And so what's the impact on all of that? And so I I think what's really important is when you look at some of the the data about uh, Jay Bear's doing great work on on speed, and of course, Shep Hike and and others are doing great research. What are the the behaviors that are derived from from that data? And what's the financial ramifications of us doing it wrong, right? We talk about doing CX right. Doing CX CX right attracts, retains, um, it's dollars we can spend. And the ones, the people who are frustrated, and we all get frustrated, and there will always be a measure of that, there is a financial ramification of that. And so putting all of those people in the room uh, is so important. It's going to be more important because we're going to have more data and more um, dashboards and more um, translation into what that means, right? The early mm. days of data was very difficult because somebody had to translate it. Some of the new studies and the predictive things helps all of that happen. It's an exciting time. I, I love the industry right now. I think the things that we're learning and we're going to be better, I think it's it's a great time to be a consumer. It is. And I think everything you've described does go very well summed up about how important it is to be ridiculously easy, ridiculously simple. Yeah. Because and that when people are people. frustrated, they leave for one simple reason, because they can. Because we yeah, have more choices than we've ever had. And yes. you, you make somebody frustrated, they leave. And sometimes you're okay without calculus. And uh, I think, yeah, yeah I think we got to be easy. Yeah, it's it's intuitive and it's almost no duh, but yet we could have hours of conversation about it. And so hopefully people listening to this will be mindful as they go about their day as a customer, as they go about their their world in producing products and market messaging and pricing and everything. How easy is it to be your customer? Yeah, I mean, it's it, and because your customers are asking the same question. All the time, yes. because yes. because we have options. So as we get to uh, rapid fire here, questions. Sure. Leadership. We know that you can't have a good customer experience if you don't have the internal team that leads right. We talked about empowerment. So leadership. What is the best leadership advice that you've received personally, or that you've given to others that um, has impact? Oh. Uh, you know, I, I think part of the, the leadership lesson that I give to others as well, there's a reason why people ascended to the position. They, they know a lot, um, but there's there's a danger in, in knowing and believing so much of what you, you think you know because it used to be true. And so yeah. the biggest challenge for leadership today is to really open their mind and recognize that the reasons why their customers do business with them have changed. I work with organizations where, where the uh, this, the, the CEO, and I've, and I've been fortunate, I've, I've spoken to a lot of CEO roundtable groups. I've had one-on-one conversations with over 7,000 CEOs. And when I would ask them, what's your competitive advantage? It's always some version of quality, 
commitment, caring, trust, people. And that's what they espouse internally as well. And of course, we know the research shows people are prioritizing, prioritizing speed and flexibility and, and accommodation for unique circumstances. And to paraphrase our great friend, um, Sally Hogshead, convenience, because convenience is better than better in many cases. And so I think for many leaders, um, they still hold to this belief. I, I was keynoting a conference and the CEO was on right before me. And he says, after his rah-rah speech, he says, and remember, at the end of the day, it's about quality. We will win on quality. And they go crazy. And I'm thinking to myself, I could not disagree more. At the beginning of the, or at the end of the day, it's not about quality. At the beginning of the day, it's about quality. Quality is the entry fee. Quality gives you permission to do business in the marketplace. It's not a competitive advantage anymore. At the beginning of the day, it's about quality. At the end of the day, it's about competitive advantage. What do you do better than others who do it well? And I think the big driver today is the experience. And in my case, because what I espouse, it's, it's helping companies become, um, assuming they're very good at what they do, don't take your eye off the ball, but to become ridiculously easy to do business with. Absolutely. If I had tons of leaders in my room right now, what's that one takeaway that you want them to remember from our conversation? Um, yeah, I, I think the, the big takeaway is what motivates your team and makes you look great isn't necessarily the truth they need to hear. And so what oftentimes, it's just what I just said, they'll tell everybody quality is job one. And once again, quality is the entry fee. Um, they, need to, they need to be preferable, not just qualified. And today there yeah. is such a universal leveling of the field. Everybody's good. Now people argue with me, I say, listen, Everybody, if you wouldn't you weren't good, you wouldn't survive today. It's Yelp, it's TripAdvisor, it's Rotten Tomatoes, it's Glassdoor. You would be outed. But sometimes good enough at a better price point is a better choice. So don't take your eye off the ball, but understand what the, the criteria customers are using today is different. And it's Absolutely. about convenience and speed. Yes. And I also think that within new product development, I have seen that speed has driven the lack of time to get customer feedback. Yeah. And so that's a little bit of the flip side is there's so much about speed that they, that they don't do that agile process of feedback. So I think there's the right time and context with convenience, speed, quality, Voice of customer always. Yeah, all um, of the above. This, right. This, yes. Listen, as, as we like to say, it, it's simple, but it isn't easy. Um, no, it is all no. of those things. Just as it is for us as consumers, we gauge yeah. all of those things as well. There was, and I know we're short on time, but there was, yeah. there was a woman who was on um, a year ago talking about Bed Bath & Beyond. And she was spinning the fact that they had been down for a few quarters and said that, you know, they had been struggling with their supply chain. And, and I looked at my wife and I said, that's garbage. I said, we're not not finding we, what we want at Bed Bath & Beyond. We're not going to Bed Bath & Beyond. I'm in Denver. We have three Amazon warehouses. 90% of what we order, apparently every day, um, comes same day. So yeah. the criteria is, is different. Doesn't mean everybody has to be that, but just really put a lot of time and thought into what is important to your customers. What is your competitive marketplace? How do we compare? And once again, your line about the, or ask about the, the CEOs. Don't drink so much of your own Kool-Aid 
that you mm-hmm. think you've created yeah. the cure for cancer that tastes like chocolate. You're just good. <laughs> and other and others are as well. Now be be easier to buy from. Yes. And by the way, bed and bath no longer exists. Yeah. Now, so it's, now it's just a name that Overstock bought. And so now Overstock.com is now bedbathandbeyond.com, but in name only. Why you would buy yeah, a failing brand, I, that's a whole other conversation for another day. That's a different episode. And David, if you could go back in time to your younger 20-year-old self based on yes. what you know now that you didn't know then, what would you tell younger David? Um, go talk to the girl. She's probably, <laughs> she's probably as nervous as you are. <laughs> perfect, perfect. You and then what would, you, what would you tell the professional? Oh, David? you know what I would do? I would, I would say, appreciate the gift of learning. It's not a chore, it's a gift. And I tell mm-hmm. that to my son because he is that version of me. He's 20 years old, my youngest boy. And I'm like, drink this up with a spoon. I know it sounds like a pain, but they're teaching you how to make money later in life. Pay attention. Ugh. Don't check out. Um, how many of us later in life think, I would love to go back to school, but our 20-year-old self wouldn't have said that. So it, it's, it's constant learning, which is where we are in, in our lives as well. If we want to stay relevant, uh, if we want to stay knowledgeable and stay of value to our customers and clients, we have to be voracious in learning. Yes. And my last statement to that is I now love the the History Channel. I now love documentaries. I know, we too. <laughs> We're so old. My, my, we love it. We love documentaries. We love, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> well, thank you. thank you. It really is. What a, what a delight thank you, you are. Oh, thank you for being here. And I can't wait to share this episode. And I will reveal in the show notes all the ways to get in touch with you and your books and your website and all the fabulous content. So thank you. Outstanding. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining today. I hope you will apply the lesson shared and also requesting if you would leave a review on Apple, it would mean a lot. Head over to doingcxright.com to learn more ways to connect with me and improve your CX. Until next time, I'm Stacey Sherman, Doing CX Right.